Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 9, we read, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be. Hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. In this chapter, Jesus has spoken of two prophecies and he will speak of two parables. The first prophecy concerns the temple in Jerusalem in verses one and two. And the second prophecy concerns the events That surround the time of the end of time when armies will surround Jerusalem, when when that event will take place that's spoken of the Bible, of the time of Jacob's sorrow and the time of great tribulation. Then Jesus presents two parables, the fig tree in verses 28 through 31, and then the parable of the alert servants in verses 32 through 37. Jesus is predicting a series of signs or signals, signs that signal his soon coming, his return, the end of Jerusalem, and then the end of what we might call the dispensation of grace, the dispensation of the church age. The first sign were to be spiritual deceptions and False messiahs in verses 4 through 6. The second sign were rumors of wars, world wars, escalating conflict in verses 7 and 8. And then the third sign included natural disasters, earthquakes, and famines which were spoken of at the end of verse 8. And now Jesus will give five more signs. The persecution by civil and religious authorities in verse 9. Worldwide evangelism in verse 10. A supernatural witness by the Holy Spirit in verse 11. The great division of families in verses 12 and 13. And then he tells us of the fact that those who will endure persecution. Those who... Make it through this deep and difficult time will experience deliverance. Now, we know that believers in every generation face storms. As a matter of fact, as Jesus is given this private counsel to Peter, James, John and Andrew, we know that just within a a few days, Jesus is going to follow in the direction he's going to be betrayed himself. He is going to be incarcerated. Then he is going to be tortured and then he is going to be executed by the Roman authorities. 
Believers in every generation face storms. And the issue isn't whether or not you will face a storm because Jesus said that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The issue isn't whether or not there will be persecution. The issue is how will we weather the storm? The emphasis shifts actually from the storms to surviving the storms, to weather the storm. And that's the great question. Will we remain strong in the storm? Already we've seen that deception invites us to leave our Lord. And now fear invites us to hide the gospel. And we'll see later on in the chapter how ignorance is content to remain in the dark and not think about the future. But Jesus says expect persecution. Expect a continued worldwide penetration of the gospel. Expect powerful supernatural provision and preparation in time. Times of need by God's Holy Spirit. Expect courageous perseverance by godly saints. And so it begins. The persecution of the godly. Look in verse 9. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. And for a testimony to them after the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament relates how immediately the disciples are thrown into a headwind. They will preach the gospel. They will be presented before the council of the Sanhedrin. They will be commanded to to not speak in the name of Jesus. Later, Paul himself will stand before Agrippa number one and then Agrippa number two. And eventually Paul will make his way to the other side of the Mediterranean and face Nero himself. Jesus predicts great personal testing for those who refuse to flinch in the face of adversity. And that's why he says. But watch out. For yourselves. He warned first about deception, and now he warns about persecution, for they will deliver you up. It's one Greek word in the original language, para didomai. The same word will be translated brought to trial in verse 11. It will be translated betray in verse 12. Same word. The word is used 10 more times in chapter 14 and chapter 15, where it will talk about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, the deliverance to Pilate for trial. And in chapter 13, it suggests that the disciples will soon, very soon, suffer the same persecution that Jesus suffers. And so it is. And so it must be. The moment that you say, I will follow you, Jesus. The invitation is where where will you follow me? Because this is the place where he's going. He is in Jerusalem. He is headed for a cross. He is headed for a prison. He is headed for an execution. By the way, the word councils translates Synedria. It's a word that probably refers to the local councils. Ezra Gould writes, quote, 
The word is used of local tribunals to be found in Jewish towns, modeled somewhat after the Sanhedrin, the great council in Jerusalem. He writes, quote, the synagogues were the ecclesiastical tribunal of the town as the Sanhedria were the municipal courts. He tells us that there will be times and places where people will be called and they will be found guilty. Look what Jesus says. You will be beaten in the synagogues. By the way, the beating consisted of 40 lashes minus one. It's spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 1 through 3 for grievances against God or when you are found or accused of blasphemy. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 1 through 3 limits the number to 40. And so the scribes reduce the number to 39, probably to avoid violating the commandment due to some miscounting. Paul will endure this punishment not once, not twice, not three times, not four times. But by the time we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, he has already received the lashing five times. And who are the persecuted Christians? They are the believers who face severe hardship and torture and imprisonment and death because of their faith in Jesus. It's not what you might think of persecution. You might think it's persecution when someone laughs at you at school or at work. Or someone rolls their eyes when you show up with a Bible. You might think it's a letter that you get in the mail talking about your radio program. And how people are disgusted with you. But that's not persecution. You see, persecution involves something way more difficult. Jesus predicts Jews who are beaten. Note, in the synagogue. Why? Because this is the place where you expect God's presence and God's justice and God's mercy. This is not the place where you expect persecution. They're brought before rulers and kings. Again, when you're brought before a ruler and a king and a court, you expect justice. But Jesus says there will be difficulty. For my sake. Jesus speaks of a specific persecution brought about by the simple fact that the Christian identifies himself. The Christian identifies herself as a follower of Jesus, as a lover of Jesus, as a person who embraces Jesus. In the early church, many Christians were literally forced underground for worship and fellowship. And by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confided, Blessed or oh, how happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Jesus speaks of trial, of accusation, of persecution, of torture and death. And note what Jesus does. He doesn't try to increase the number of his followers by promising them health and wealth and prosperity and problem free living. Why? Because Jesus never attempts, he never attempts to attract followers with false promises or temporal prizes. Jesus does what most people are unwilling to do, he's looking for genuine believers, not false professors. He is not looking for make-believers, but true believers. For they will deliver you up, paradidomai, the same word translated brought to trial. (laughs) Jesus is looking for genuine believers. Persecution, like the wind, will blow away the chaff, leaving only the grain to fall to the ground. Conrad Black, in an article entitled Global Persecution of Christians, this is online, National Review Online. This is dated February in 2012. It reports the persecution of Christians as perhaps the most under-publicized atrocity in the world. He cites a comprehensive Pew Forum study that found that Christians are persecuted in 131 countries that contain 70% of the world's population. Out of 197 countries, there are 200 million Christians who are in communities where they are are persecuted. There is not the slightest question of the scale and barbarity of the persecution and little of it is adequately publicized. But this highlights the second half of the atrocity, the passivity and the blase indifference of most of the West's media and governments, unquote. The article goes on and says it is not generally appreciated that over 100,000 Christians a year are murdered because of their faith. In the last year, 25 to 30,000 Syrians have been slaughtered by their evil dictator. But the truth is. There is still persecution taking place at the southern tip of what used to be northern Sudan and and what still is northern Sudan and southern Sudan. People are dying right at this very moment in North Korea. Pastors have been taken prison in Iran, in Turkey. Even as we are speaking, as we're having this message right now, there are people all over the globe who are awaiting execution. The article continues. Because Christianity is by a wide margin the world's largest religion, the leading religion in the traditionally most advanced areas of the world. And despite its many fissures, the most organized largely because of the relatively tight and authoritarian structure of the Roman Catholic Church, the West is not accustomed to thinking of Christians as a minority, much less a persecuted one. But in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, 
in parts of Nepal. It is happening right at this very moment. Jesus reminds Peter and James and John and Andrew that persecution is going to become an opportunity for proclamation because guess what? Judas has already made his way up the side of the Mount of Olives and he will betray his Lord. But look what Jesus reminds them of. The reason for the persecution. For a testimony to them. The world is watching. The world is wondering whether or not the claims of Christ are true and the statements made by Christians are true. Is it true that Jesus forgives your sin? Is it true that he loves you? Is it true that he washes you and cleanses you? Is it true that he can transform you from the inside out? Is it true that he can promise you heaven? Is it true that he can give you peace right now? And they're watching. And so Jesus predicts not only a global persecution, but a global preaching of the gospel. Look what it says in verse 10. And the gospel, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. How are we to think about this first? First, we have to talk about what the gospel is and, how, and the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus speaks of it in verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. What gospel is he talking about? He's talking about the good news. But in order for you to understand and accept the good news, you have to understand the bad news. The bad news is that people are sinners in need of a savior. The bad news is that there's a holy and a righteous God who is offended by sin. And that human beings are estranged from God. The good news is that sin can be forgiven. Sin can be cleansed. Sin can be washed away. Believers can be placed in a right relationship and then fellowship with God based on the sacrifice that's about to take place. And the sacrifice will take place. Because the sacrifice will precede the kingdom. So how are we to think about this verse? Must the gospel first be preached to all the nations prior to the close of the New Testament, prior to the rapture of the church, prior to the second coming of Jesus? Was the condition met of the gospel being preached to all nations prior to the persecution and death of the apostle? If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. As a matter of fact, let's start at verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Verse 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Paul argues that in a very real sense, the sun has come up. The proclamation has been made. 
the gospel has been preached. I want you to think about this. Within 50 years of the inception of the church, assemblies had been formed on all four corners of the Roman Empire and congregations continued to form by the preaching of the gospel and by those who were scattered because of intense persecution. Even at the opening of Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaims the gospel. The gospel is spread to all four corners of the Roman Empire and then it pushes beyond the boundaries into India, north, into Russia. In the 7th and the 8th century, Cyril and Barber, they create a whole new alphabet system for the Russian people so that the Bible can be translated so that they can understand the word of God. Missionary efforts pushing further and further across the globe. Go back to verse 7. But the end is not yet. Look what it says in chapter 13, verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. End? The end of what? The end of the age. Before the end, there will be a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. John MacArthur and other Bible teachers suggest the fulfillment may take place when an angel supernaturally proclaims the gospel throughout the world before God pours out his judgment at the end of the tribulation period. But whether it is by human beings or whether it is by an angel, the gospel will be preached. I think the passage in particular refers to a time of intense hatred and global persecution. I think what Jesus is making reference to is a group of 144,000 supernaturally empowered Jewish believers who launch a global campaign of ministry throughout the world. And they go to the highways and the byways. I believe the gospel first must be preached to all the nations prior to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus in Acts chapter 1, after he rises from the dead, he says, go into all the nations. He doesn't say stay. He says, go. And go they do. The gospel will be proclaimed prior to the second coming of Jesus. William MacDonald writes, but to say that it must be, but to say that it must be is to state something that the Bible doesn't state. No prophecy needs to be fulfilled before Christ's coming for his saints. He can come at any moment for the person who looks at this passage and says, Jesus is coming is far off. I'm here to tell you that it isn't far off and that you're to live in the constant expectation of the coming of your Savior. I'm not talking about an aneurysm. I'm not talking about a car accident. I'm talking about living your life as if he can come at any moment because I believe that he can. According to the Joshua Project... There are 16,439 identified people groups on the planet Earth. 7,062 are considered unreached. Their definition of unreached is where there's less than 2% of the population that identify themselves as Christian. Where they identify themselves with no known scrap of scripture, with no known missionary attempting to reach them. Of the 7,062 considered unreached, 6,077 
live in what has been called the 1040 window. The 1040 window is that window that occupies much of North Africa. You can see the Middle East and India and China and Southeast Asia. 6,077. That means 86% of all the unreached peoples live in this particular area. And the unreached people groups fall broadly into three categories. Number one, those with less than 10,000 human beings. Number two, those with less than 50,000 human beings. Number three, those with less, with more than 50,000 human beings. And of the world's population, it represents almost certainly less than 20% of the global population. Are there people groups on the planet Earth with no known Christians, no translated scripture, no missionaries? The answer is yes. There's a group called Finishing the Task. They list 1,015 unengaged, unreached people groups with populations greater than 50,000 people. The people are located in 18 countries. 26 of these people groups are located in China. 16 are in Nepal. 14 are in Iran. One of the great privileges of my life has been able to partner with Gospel for Asia, who's focused on the 1040 window. And in my lifetime, for the first time ever, we have a full time real church operating in Nepal. It's the first time in global history. In this passage, Jesus pronounces a divine determination and assurance. Here's part of the point that you must understand as you're reading this passage. Satan will not be successful in hindering the spread of the gospel. Satan won't succeed even during the time of tribulation when life is at its worst, when the times are at their worst. God's word will be preached and God's will will be accomplished because people will resist the gospel and they will they will defy. They will deny. They will reject. But guess what? The gospel's going to go forward. It will happen. I guarantee it because Jesus has guaranteed it. And then he speaks of something amazing. Not only will persecutions take place and not only will there be a global evangelistic crusade. He talks about the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't be worried beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Peter. And James will be immediately arrested. Both will be thrown into prison. James will be killed. And Peter will be supernaturally released by an angel. The phrase, do not worry beforehand, translates one Greek verb, pro, mera, 
meh, not te. It's only here in the Greek New Testament. Pro means before or beforehand. Merimenao means to have anxiety, to be anxious, to be unduly concerned. When you lump them all together, it means don't be worried ahead of time. The persecuted saints are offered supernatural assistance. The Holy Spirit will give the saints the exact words to speak. We're left with the impression that during these times of personal persecution and then global persecution, it's going to be rapid. It's going to happen in a moment. There's going to be little time to get an attorney to prepare a defense. And so the Lord says, you know what? Some of you are going to face trial and you're not going to have an attorney. And you're not going to have representation. And the Holy Spirit will be your your advocate. The Holy Spirit helps those who walk with the Lord and sincerely want to glorify him. And by the way, the passage was never intended to be used as a proof text for failing to prepare your sermon. Or your Bible study lesson. Or your homework. You can't look at verse 10 and go, I don't have to pray and prepare. That's not what this means. You should pray and you should prepare. The text is offering comfort and hope and supernatural assistance in times of crises. Standing strong often requires believers not to be overcome by their circumstances, but rather to overcome their fear. In those circumstances. Recently I read the story of Brother Yun. As told by Sister Chen. She writes. Some years ago Brother Yun was arrested. He was put in prison and then brought to the town square. To be questioned openly. All believers were asked to join the accusation. The aim was to humiliate him and scare others by killing him. I was one who was forced to join the chorus of accusations. Brother Ewan stood in front of the government officials. No sad face, no frustration, just a peaceful face that smiled. It was as if I saw a life overflowing with peace and love. I saw you and very clearly how in the world could he look so peaceful. I saw a light shine in his eyes that I had never seen there before. Oh, yes, brother, you had always been a faithful Christian. I remembered him as a quiet man who lived with God without wanting to stand in the limelight. But now. In the light of life was shining from God's throne into this imprisoned Christian. Then he spoke as he had never spoken before. I love Christ. I spread Christ. I trust Christ. I follow Christ. I remain faithful to Christ. I am willing to accept what will come to me. I speak nothing else except him. I hope that people will come to accept Christ. That's what this passage means. We come with sorrow. We come with weakness and pain. And yet we go back with comfort and strength and joy. 
we realize that this was not Brother Yun. This was God standing by, holding up, giving words to speak, unquote. In the last several years, as I, as I go to India and as we minister the gospel and as we prepare men and women for the work of ministry, it's interesting how many of them receive a diploma, but then they also receive a graduation gift. It's a shovel. They will go to that place in North India. They will go to those places in the 1040 window. They will go to this place and they will find the place where God sends them. And then they will come to the border of the village where they are to serve. And there they dig a hole. And the hole is their grave. It is the place where they're determined to be. Or to die. And Jesus speaks of the great division in families. Look what it says in verse 12. Now brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents. And cause them to be put to death. This isn't normal marital problems ladies and gentlemen. This verse isn't, my husband is angry with me, my wife is upset. This isn't, this isn't the normal family hijinks. This is a time of great division and great persecution. The Bible teaches that the gospel has always divided families. Because when you come into a right relationship with God and Christ, there will be people, there will be mothers and there will be fathers. There will be husbands and there will be wives. There will be grandchildren and children. There will be people who will say, I don't want to know God. I don't want to serve God. I don't want to love God. Micah's prophecy in chapter 7 verse 6 foretells it. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. In the same period called the tribulation, there will be widespread betrayal to those who are loyal to the Savior Jesus. And there's a tiny taste that was given to us during the Nazi occupation of Europe and when Germans were going door to door looking for Jewish people to transport. And people fell into two categories. Those who bravely resisted. And those who caved in. Those who gave up their neighbors. Their families. Their friends. Family members will serve as spies and informants. And they will betray believers. And a great wave of anti-Christian sentiment will sweep the cultures and governments of the planet, of, the, uh, of earth. But guess what? It has already begun. Just because it's safe for you doesn't mean that it's safe for everyone. I hope my message does at least one thing. I hope it motivates you to at least begin to ask and answer this question. Lord, who are these men and women and how can I pray for them and how can I help them and how can I provide for them? 
It's going to take a great deal of courage to remain loyal to Jesus in that day. What day is that? I think that the text is speaking of a time of unprecedented and unparalleled persecution. But what of our day? What of this day? What about your circumstance right now? You see, you may have already faced or you may have to face in the not too distant future divided loyalties. Where because you love Jesus, because you honor Jesus, because you get up in the morning and you pray and you love him and you serve him and you're unwilling to compromise at school and you're unwilling to compromise with your friends and you're unwilling to compromise with your neighbors and you're unwilling to compromise with your families that they don't want to have anything to do with you. But make sure it's for the right reason. Not because you're stupid or weird. And look what else it says. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. By the way, salvation has a lot of different meanings in the New Testament. It's determined by context. It can mean salvation from sin. It can mean salvation from hell. It can be rescue from danger. It can be rescue from disease. The text cannot mean that faithful believers will be given eternal life on the basis of having survived the great tribulation. Because that's not true. People are not saved by surviving the great tribulation. People are saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God lest any person should boast. People are saved because they enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. Neither can it mean that faithful followers of Jesus will be spared death in the tribulation. Because we read elsewhere that many will seal their testimony with their own blood. And the book of Revelation, we hear the voices calling from underneath the altar about the persecution and justice. Again, the clue is given to us in verse 7. The end is not yet. The end of what? I'm going to suggest to you it's not the end of life, but rather the end of the age. And again, I think the primary application are for believers who have yet to live and who will live during the tribulation period. And there will be unprecedented pain and unprecedented persecution and unprecedented division. And there will be judgment. And most will not survive. But some will. William MacDonald writes, what it probably means is that endurance to the end will evidence reality. That is, it will characterize those who are genuinely saved. In what sense? I'm going to suggest to you in the ultimate sense, in the sense that no one would endure this kind of painful persecution, this kind of hope, hopeless division, unless they're genuinely, truly, fundamentally saved. Because that's what persecution will do. The grain will fall to the earth. The chaff will blow away. And you might find yourself in a place where you say, 
It's too hard to be a, a Christian. It's too difficult to be a Christian. The sacrifice is too great to be a Christian. In every age, in every place, true faith is proved by faithfulness, by endurance, by perseverance. Jesus is hated by all. By the way, by the time you get to the end of the first century, the Roman historian Tacitus says of the Christians, they are hated by all for their abominations. So there are hard lessons in the storm. And so Jesus says, endure. The word translated endure is hupomone. I love that word because it always reminds me of Italian ice cream. Spamone. But this is hupomone. It means to remain. It means to persevere. It means to endure. But it carries with it the idea, not just of remaining, not just abiding, not just surviving, not just making it through the plagues and the problems and the persecutions and the trials. It doesn't mean coming out at the other end because you managed to survive. It carries with it the assurance, the sense of assurance of calm. Courage. As a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, he said, You shall have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. There are some things that are worse than dying. It's to live the life of a coward in fear, apart from faith. Jesus is going to remind Peter, James, John, Andrew, that this isn't just simply a prophecy conference where you get to satisfy your imagination and need to know what's going to happen in the end. But sometimes weakness is the direct path to power. And sometimes overcoming is greater than deliverance. And sometimes extreme hurt requires extreme forgiveness. And the path to power for Jesus will be a cross. And the path to overcoming means that Jesus will not be delivered from the hands of the Jewish authorities or from the Roman soldiers. But he will be killed. He will be crucified. And he will say, Father, forgive them. Because he understands that the greatest need that human beings face is the need to be cleansed from the inside out in order to have a right relationship with God forever. And so the Christian is called to pray for the persecuted brethren. 
to pray for those who are unreached with the message of hope and glory. But make no mistake about it. As you pray for Christians in North Korea, as you pray for Christians in China, as you pray for Christians in Somalia, as you go around the globe and you begin to experience what it means to enter into the fellowship of their suffering, it could very well be that one day you are going to find yourself not in the place of society, but in the place of solitude. And you will sense the presence of God like you've never sensed it before. Jesus said, if you find yourself in a position of persecution, rejoice and pray for the strength to endure. Remember what Jesus has already said. Don't be deceived in verses 1 through 8. Don't be afraid, verses 9 through 13. But now Jesus will inform his readers about the dangers of darkness and ignorance. For those who close their Bible... And they have no desire to look and see what Jesus has said about the future. So if we're not to be deceived. Then we have to embrace the light that he's given to us. If we're not going to be afraid. Then there has to be something that you love more. Than you fear. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's what makes the fear go away. That's what makes a mother stand at her doorstep with a broom and face a grizzly bear in order to protect her children. Something has to well up inside of you and be more real and more sure than the opposition, than the persecution, than the humiliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we do pray for our brothers and our sisters who find themselves, even at this very moment, as we're folding our hands and we're praying, they feel the chains, the shackles on their wrists. They see the prison bars. They feel the cement floor. They understand What little they might receive today is just enough to perhaps get them to tomorrow. Where the only thing that they have to look forward to is a lengthy imprisonment or a sure execution. And so, Lord, we collectively, corporately put our prayers together. And, Lord, we pray for those who face What seems like the impossible. But Lord again we pray that they would sense your presence. That they would sense your love. That they would feel your strength and your favor. That that man that woman would know that they are in the exact place that you called them to be as a testimony. To that man or that woman who's just outside the door. Who's wondering whether or not. Jesus is real. 
whether or not forgiveness is real, whether or not heaven is real, whether or not there's some things worth living for and worth dying for. Lord, we pray that they would come to know you and that the testimony would continue and the process of global evangelization would continue and the message of hope would be heard around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.